This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie that we podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on our recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Genevieve Kosky. And Tasha Robinson. Our usual co-host, Scott Tobias, is currently lost in a strange, ever-shifting wonderland of whimsy and terror. But we're joined instead by Vulture's Eric Villas-Boas, who writes and reports on animation. Hi, Eric. Hello. Thank you for having me. Well, this is exciting. I, I was just informed that uh, our Your Next Picture Show segment later in this uh, set of podcasts is going to be the two of us nerding out. <laughs> it is uh, nice to be hanging with a fellow animation nerd because yes. I'm, I'm planning on let my nerd flag fly on this one. I'm just going <laughs> to warn you right now. I am so excited to only talk about animation for once in my life. That's that's very fun. Yes, Eric is the, the keeper of uh, Vulture's animation coverage these days and uh, just filed uh, his best of the year list. So I think we'll probably be hearing a little bit more about that later, right? When's that running? Probably when you're hearing this. It'll probably be, uh, it'll probably be out later in the week you're hearing this. Yeah. It'll be old news. We'll, have, we'll, know, all, we'll know all his secrets at that point. You know how the internet goes. We'll have forgotten about it by then. Yeah. Well, in the meantime, Tasha, can you tell us what we're talking about this week on, on this podcast right here? I cannot promise that people won't forget about this by the time I'm finished reading this, but I'll give it a shot. When Spirited Away arrived in theaters in 2001, it almost played like a career-capping work for director Hayao Miyazaki. Miyazaki was 60 and had directed a string of films that had become touchstones for Japanese animation and, as one of the co-founders of Studio Ghibli, had assisted in the production of others. My Neighbor Tortoro and Kiki's Delivery Service helped make him a figure of international renown with a gift for stories for and about children. Princess Mononoke brought out a strand of darkness always present in his more whimsical works. Spirited Away brought it all together via an Alice in Wonderland-inspired trip through a world inhabited by Shinto spirits, figures from Japanese folklore, and other fantastic creatures and places. Miyazaki kept going for another decade plus, then retired in 2013, but that retirement did not stick. 
The director's latest, The Boy and the Heron, is an unmistakably Miyazaki creation with elements drawn from his own life and from his past work, including Spirited Away. Its release seemed like a good occasion to revisit his 2001 masterpiece. With this episode, we'll talk about Spirited Away. Then we'll return with our next episode and bring in The Boy and the Heron and inevitably all things Miyazaki. We'll be back after the break. Walt Disney Studios presents a Studio Ghibli film. Honey, don't take a shortcut. You always get us lost. From master filmmaker Hayao Miyazaki. What is it? Come on, let's go in. I want to see what's on the other side. Where are you going? Hey! You said just a quick look. Now let's go back. You shouldn't be here. Get out of here now. What? Leave before it gets dark. You've got to get across the river. Go. I'll distract them. Don't be afraid. I'm Master Haku. No. I just want to help you. Asked in a 2001 interview why he set Spirited Away at a bathhouse, Hayao Miyazaki gave an answer that only sounds glib at first. It would be fun if there was such a bathhouse, he told Animage. It's the same as when we go to hot springs. Japanese gods go there to rest for a few days. I was thinking it was tough being a Japanese god today. In a separate interview with Japan Times Weekly, Miyazaki said, In my grandparents' time, it was believed that kami, Shinto spirits, existed everywhere. In trees, rivers, insects, wells, anything. My generation does not believe this. Nor, it should be assumed, does the generation of Chihiro, the 10-year-old protagonist of Spirited Away. An ordinary modern girl, Chihiro is wary of moving to a new home in the Japanese countryside with her parents. Shortly before arriving, the family stumbles upon what her parents believe to be an abandoned amusement park, a casualty of a Japanese economy that stagnated in the 1990s after the boom years of the 1980s. Upon arriving, they set about consuming food from one of its concession stands, never suspecting there could be anything but a mundane explanation for this diversion. They live in a world without spirits. Or so they believe. Chihiro soon comes to see otherwise after watching her parents turn into pigs. She then becomes trapped in a world populated with otherworldly beings like Haku, a boy who can turn into a dragon, and No-Face, a seemingly gentle masked spirit who follows her into the bustling bathhouse. There she finds employment from the prickly Yubaba. She also finds a new name, Sen. But the world Chihiro enters isn't entirely removed from the world she left. In fact, they're closely connected. A river spirit's trip to the bathhouse ends with a disgusting expulsion of pollution. The spirits are revealed as being as vulnerable to temptation and greed and prone to petty disagreements as those in the world Chihiro left behind. Like other Miyazaki films, Spirited Away resists attempts to explain its wondrous world, which changes with the logic and frequency of dreams. But it makes it easy to tease out concern with the environment, consumerism, and misplaced priorities all elements of a materialistic world that's lost touch with the spiritual realm that's begun to mirror it. Miyazaki has a way of delivering simple answers to interview questions, and has said that he made Spirited Away because he wanted to make a movie in which the 10-year-old girl was the hero. That's fair enough. But Spirited Away also plays like a message from one generation to another, both about what may be found when looking beyond the ordinary world, and what might be lost when we stop looking. Step up to the right, please, gentlemen. 
sure it's humble. Yeah. I don't think they're big enough. Your rooms are right this way. Hmm. Lynn? What? What's that smell? It's human. You smell just like a human. Oh, really? Where's it coming from, Lynn? Come on. You're hiding something, aren't you? Show it to me. Is this what you smell? <gasps> Roasted! Newt! No way, Frog. I'm saving every last bite for myself. Please, just a little bit. Just give me a leg. If you want to go up, pull the lever on your right. How could you be so cool? Can't you share? So I've seen this film many, many times, both as an admirer of the film and as a parent. Uh, it certainly was a, was a staple. Between viewings, I tend to forget. I remember everything that happens, but I don't really know what happens when. And without in any way suggesting that there's not a progression to this story, it always strikes me that the, the rules and logic of the world don't really have a consistency to them. And I don't mean that as a complaint. I feel like it's actually kind of a strength of the film, but maybe I just don't know enough about anime and uh, it is sort of Japanese folklore to, uh, maybe I'm missing something. So I'm going to turn to our more expert members of this panel to tell me, am I wrong to kind of just enjoy swimming around in this film and not necessarily trying to apply a consistency or logic to uh, its world? I mean, you're certainly not going to go wrong by just enjoying swimming around in this world because it's mm -hmm. a really lush, gorgeous one. But in terms of the logic of it, I definitely felt like that the first couple of times I saw the film. I, I felt like its logic was just really kind of random and all over the place. You know, things mutate into other things and, uh, you know, bad guys turn into good guys and everything's kind of crowded and crazy and chaotic. But the more I watch this film, and this is really up there with my most watched ever films, the more I think that there is a pretty consistent and coherent logic to it. And it's a logic that maybe doesn't make as much sense to to Western eyes as it would to Japanese eyes in terms of its fairy tale logic. But it's not, these aren't are fairy tales. Mm. But at the same time, there's a thread that runs through this that's very much the spirit of Western fairy tales as well, which we know uh, Miyazaki loves Western stories. A, a surprising number of his movies are based on Western fairy tale themed novels, like mostly written by women, mostly British women. And here, it, the logic, part of the logic is just your bog standard fairy tale, what you put into the world is what you get back out of it. You know, Chihiro is kind to a little coal spirit that's struggling. And as a result, she impresses everyone and they help her more. You know, the spider fellow sees that she has a kind heart and then he stands up for her and helps her. The little coal spirits help her in the future. When she's giving and good, the world becomes more giving and good around her. When she tries to help No-Face, things fall apart, but she manages to avoid being eaten because she's not greedy the way everybody else is. You know, there is a very consistent feeling to this story that's just when you fall into a world where everything is mutable and you're surrounded by spirits, your own spirit makes a huge difference in terms of how everything presents itself and how it treats you. I think that that's definitely right. I think that there's also, you know, a lot of Miyazaki movies kind of tend to follow 
And I think this one sort of falls into that where there, a lot of them are super dreamlike, right? Like there's maybe not a, a real world logic to it, but there is a dream logic to it. And that kind of manifests in what you're describing, Tasha, and also like, you know, there are a bunch of moments in the movie where explanations are given for how or why things are happening that Chihiro can't really understand. And they, you know, they seem like almost overly glib. I think back to when her parents are changed into pigs and Haku shows her the pigs and she kind of like thinks like, are they going to stay like that forever or are, are they sick? And he just says, no, they eat too much. <laughs> That's basically the only explanation that he gives her and that the film delivers at that point. And, and ultimately, like if we watch this movie, we know that her parents wind up being fine. But like in the moment, Miyazaki doesn't seem feel the need to explain or over explain a lot of these kinds of things that might at first, like on first viewing, on second viewing, might read to us as inconsistencies. He kind of just trusts that we're going to be along for the ride. And I, that's one thing I love about all of his movies. I love getting that sense of getting taken away as if you're in a dream, right? As if you are in some fantasy realm where you don't have control. And when you might encounter like strange creatures that you don't recognize or who might have weird barter systems where they, they magic gold out of their, out of their hands or whatever. And, and then eat a frog who they've just given gold to. Like you're sort of meant to be off balance. I think the one thing, as far as control goes, though, it, that's really important in Miyazaki movies is you may not have control over the world around you, and you certainly don't have control over what other people do, but you have control over your own choices. And it's just hugely important in Miyazaki films what choices you make and how how you choose to go through your life, regardless of what everybody else around you does. Yeah, one thing I uh, wanted to mention when you were talking about Chihiro's sort of arc, like uh, visiting kindness or responding with kindness toward people, is that as far as sort of the, I guess, cause and effect or, or logic of this movie, I think it's worth noting that, that she begins acting that way after her first interaction with Haku, and he gives her the the food so that she doesn't disappear, and he like he leads her through this world, and he gives her that kindness in order that she can pay it forward to put in very glib terms. But so there is sort of a uh, an emotional logic, I guess, to that arc. But as far as Keith's question of, you know, does the lack of a sort of internal logic or explanation for, I don't know why Yubaba has this contract where she has to give everyone who asks a job, I think that's the sort of, you know, squishiness of the the logic of this world is what makes it so rewatchable. Like this is like Tasha, one of the movies I've watched more than any others in my life. And I am still always like kind of disoriented watching it because it's a movie that I associate so much more with imagery than with plot. And with characters, I guess, you know, you're 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 no face and you're Yubaba and uh any of the characters I like can pull, but I necessarily I can tell you everything they do in the order they do it. You know, it's not necessarily a movie about story. It's a movie about swimming around in it. And Miyazaki's films are very fluid by nature. Tasha, you wrote a beautiful essay back at the Dissolve, I remember, about sort of the fluids and the fluidness of uh, Spirited Away and sort of his work in general. And the water and liquid imagery, of course, plays into all of that as well. But just as a viewing experience, I think what is so exciting about it is that you can watch it and be surprised over and over again, or at least I can. Um, I'll also mention that this was the first time I watched the dub. Um, I've always been a, a subtitles girly, but this time I was like, I'm going to watch the dub just to, to see what that's like. And that was also a slightly different experience. And I think 
maybe not an entirely positive one. Um, we don't need to dwell too much on it, but I want to talk about it a little bit though, because yeah. we talked about it before, and I thought I had not seen the dub. Of course, I had, because you know when I first showed our kid the film, I, we watched the dubbed <laughs> version, and I actually come. I'm very fond of the dubbed version. I, I love Suzanne Plachette's performance mm-hmm. as Yubaba, and there's like just moments. Devay Chase does uh, the voice of Chihiro. I think she's really good, and she's good even in moments. There's like these weird moments where obviously the, the syllables of English and the syllables of Japanese aren't kind of matching up exactly as, as often happens in a dubbed version. But when she goes, whatever, goes, and your name is River Haku. And like she kind of like spits it out really quickly, which is probably just to, <laughs> to match the lip sync. But I, I love the, you know, I, I kind of like really love that moment. It's just kind of an emotional beat the way she does it. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm, I, I, I like both versions. You, you can't really go wrong either way. I think that the the Disney dubs that came out kind of in the late 90s and early 2000s are generally, I think, like very good. <laughs> like as far as as anime dubbing goes, if you think about anime dubbing used to be terrible, right? Like there were versions of Miyazaki's movies that came out. The first version of Totoro that Troma put out. <laughs> Streamline pictures. Yeah. Oh or my Carl, gosh. Carl Masick. Yeah, like they're, they're... Or the recut Nausicaa, The Valley of the Wind. Exactly, like like Warriors of the Wind. Like there, there are all these versions of these movies that came out in the '80s and '90s that are terrible by comparison. The Disney dubs in general, I think they do a very and the I guess Miramax, they do a really good job of kind of adapting it to the best of their ability. Like for for Princess Mononoke, like Neil Gaiman wrote the English script for that. So and it's it, I still think it's like a very high quality dub. I hated the, that dub. <laughs> I, I I think the I think the script, like his script choices, are really thoughtful, and I, it's a delight whenever he does an interview about the specific details, like the choices he made and why. But yeah. I hated the voices in that version <laughs> so much. Interesting, interesting. I mean, I don't want to be too hard on on this dub because it it is good. I certainly don't have the comparison points that that y'all do. And Eric and I chatted a little bit about a bit about this earlier. But I'm really just hung up on the addition of a couple lines at the very end that I think really undermine the poetry of the the final beat of this film where there's... Oh, let's get granular. What, what, do, you, what, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah, I, w- I want to yeah. hear about this. So yeah, the dub has the addition of a few lines after sort of the final shot of Chihiro as the car is driving away with uh, her parents asking her if she's going to be okay. And Chihiro saying, I think I can handle it, you know, which is cute and definitely sort of puts a maybe a slightly kid-friendly button on the the big arc of the movie but uh, as i said i think kind of undermines the the poetry of of the ending yeah. just a little bit yeah fair enough <laughs> It's amazing how sometimes just like one little tweak like that uh, just feels like it really undermines things. I I remember really distinctly the first dubbed English dubbed version of My Neighbor Tortoro. There's a thing towards the end where May has tried to run off to the hospital to see her mom. And they find a shoe like there are there's a search party out and they find a shoe near a pond. And uh, there's uh, an old old woman that's dealt with uh, the two girls in the past, and she has it in her hands, and she's frantic because she thinks that May has possibly drowned. And in the original version, you know, the the searchers take it seriously until Satsuki shows up and looks at the shoe and says, "That's not hers." And it's it's just a a moment of such relief. And in the dub version, somebody decided that this didn't belong in a children's film. 
And when the old woman comes up with a shoe, one of the searchers say says something like, you know, don't be so silly. Obviously, nothing's happened to her. Hmm. And it's just such a weird, intrusive insert. Like, I, I don't know why people look at masterpieces of cinema and say, you know what this needs is for somebody to explain it to the audience more. Well, I mean, King Lear had a happy ending for about 100 years <laughs> before they went back to the original. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, like I've defended dubs before, but. I don't defend anything like that, right? Like, and I think that the, like examples like the Totoro, like that Totoro change, I mean, that scene is, that scene is so powerful. And then examples like the Spirited Away ending, you're kind of just junking, you know, as, as journalists, we write about like, you know, writing a good kicker. <laughs> Spirited Away had a great kicker. <laughs> and then they decided to add three more lines onto <laughs> it. Like a hat on a hat. A hat on yeah. a hat. Exactly. Like it, it's terrible. Like, I, why would you do that? And I, and like, maybe, maybe someone at Disney decided hey, like, we need to make this more palatable, but why? Like, it doesn't It doesn't actually make it more palatable, right? It, it kind of, I, I don't think that anybody who would make that decision is actually kind of capable of making that call. Yeah. I, I feel like it's just like underlining, highlighting, like, this is a coming of age story, and she has now come of age, you know? And <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea of that being the line, I can handle it, mom. I've come of age now during this narrative. It's right. not far from that. But I don't want that to distract us too much from discussing a movie that uh, in, in whatever version has so much going for it. Although I hear it is maybe not considered the ultimate Ghibli masterpiece by someone on this call. Would he like to say anything more about that? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I People love this movie. I mean, I love this movie. My whole thing is that I have like my I have like three intellectual favorites for Miyazaki's best movies, right? And they, they kind of all rotate within a top three. And they are My Neighbor Totoro and Princess Mononoke and this movie, Spirited Away. Every time I rewatch one of them in general, they kind of, they tend to rotate back to the top, to the number one. But like the emotional favorite, right? Like the one that I love the most is none of these movies. And it's Kiki's Delivery Service because mm -hmm. it's the first one that I watched. <laughs> and, and, you know, we talked to bring it back to like dubbing. Like I watched like the first version, the first dub of that movie had all these kind of like inserted lines and like weird inserted piano fills that had like a Disney song that was added in by some Canadian singer songwriter. <laughs> and like, that's the first version of the movie that I watched. And it just happens to be the one that I love the most. I love all the versions of the movie, obviously, but it's funny to me that like the Miyazaki is this director who like, you form such an emotional attachment from a very young age to one person's works. And like, that's kind of what, that's how I've kind of experienced them for the past like 20 some odd years. Like I, like a new one will come out and then that one will be either the new favorite or like, or like it'll change me in a, in some way that I hadn't even realized before. Like I, Kiki's was the first one that I watched. And then the second one was Princess Mononoke in the early 2000s. And like that kind of like, you know, I, I recognize that it was the same director, same art style. Like I was, I was old enough to kind of understand those things. And that was the first movie of its kind that kind of like taught me that in animation to understand those things. Like, you know, like the same people made this, this is the same, this comes from the same source, but it's so different, it's so much more violent. It's so much more, you know, it's kind of telling a very different story. And then Spirited Away comes out and it's like kind of doing things on like a different level, like on a much more thematically different level than Mononoke or Kiki's Delivery Service. And then that one was like, okay, like that's the goat, <laughs> right? And so, and then I watched Totoro like years later as an adult, not even as a child. And I was like, this is, a lot of people talk about Miyazaki as like this artist who creates nostalgia for a time or a place that you've never lived in. And that's like kind of what a lot of that movie feels like, right? Like a, that's what, a, that's what that Twilight scene kind of feels like to me. Like a, uh, it's like sort of a, 
it creates like a mood for uh, or a feeling that I've never experienced before, but like I, I recognized in some way. And then that became the thing. <laughs> so, so it's like, I don't know, like, you know, Spirited Away is, it might be his best movie. It might be the one that I like, you know, everybody like, lo- like so many of my, my colleagues and friends love this movie the most out of all of his movies. And I understand that. But then I'm like, oh, I got to go back to Kiki's <laughs> Delivery Service. I think it's kind of fair to have at least two Miyazaki favorites because Miyazaki works in in two major modes. You know, Tortoro and Spirited Away aren't necessarily made precisely for the same audience. And, you know, some of his his work is just more youth inflected. Some of it is aimed at like younger viewers than other movies. And I, I just don't think I claim Spirited Away as my favorite Miyazaki because, you know, if I was on a desert island with one Miyazaki movie or, you know, the people, the, the, the joy stealing monsters who come along on social media and say, we're going to eradicate every movie by a director except one, <laughs> you know, trying to tr- create a horrible dystopian world that they're going to force you to live in in your mind. Those people I would always answer with Spirited Away over Tortoro. But Tortoro was my first Miyazaki and was a, a revelation. And it has a charm and a, an innocence and a sweetness that isn't necessarily present in Spirited Away because Spirited Away is a darker kind of fable about a darker kind of situation and just dealing with much more complicated emotions. So, you know, much as I'm not going to try to make you pick like whether apples or oranges are the superior fruit, I don't think one necessarily needs to pick one favorite Miyazaki and ignore the fact that these are just such different movies for such different audiences. That said, I maintain that Spirited Away is probably the best entry point for people on like for adults in particular. Um, although Keith, I would be very interested to hear what it's like experiencing it with uh, with your kid, but because I think it does live probably in like it's like the most middle ground I think between the more quote unquote adult Ghibli and the more youth oriented you know because it does have this kind of familiar fairy tale like structure you know there's there's dragons and witches and you know like these kind of familiar elements from fairy tales even if they're not shown through a western lens that we maybe grew up with but you know like I think even kids can maybe kind of recognize and I think kids are maybe a little more prone to kind of going with that dream logic in a way than than adults might be but because spirit away does have this these sort of like darker inflections and you know this uh, n- n- thread of nostalgia running through it i think that also can appeal to older viewers who might be skeptical of animation which we we don't like that at all around here but it does <laughs> you you do encounter them in the wild unfortunately so i think if you wanted to try to indoctrinate someone into the world of of ghibli the spirited way is to my mind the obvious pick i don't know maybe totoro but see here i am again yeah. trying to <laughs> you got two but no i'm gonna i'm gonna stick with the spirited away <laughs> as the one <laughs> If Scott were here, he would kind of echo what you were saying. Mm-hmm. That, that that these, I mean, we talk about dream logic with these films. There's also kind of a kid logic to them, mm-hmm. where they can more easily access the part of the brain that's just kind of going to go with this. Which is something else I kind of want to talk about is like this is such a shifting world. I've always find it fascinating 
you know, there's a changed relationship between, between friends and foes and, and, you know, friends that become foes of a type. I'm thinking of no face whose <laughs> transformation is kind of terrifying in this movie, you know, and sort of the moral gray area occupied by some of the other characters like, like Yubaba, who is kind of sadistic, but you know, she loves her baby, you know, and, and like, there's, there's just, there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of complexity to these characters. And, and, and so what do you, what do you make of the sort of the ambiguous, morally speaking, it's not a black and white world. What do you, what do you make of that and the characters within it? I did. Uh, when the Ghibli films came to HBO Max and were suddenly all available, like much more available than they had been and, and all in one place. We did a big kind of unit at Polygon where we wrote about like all of the different films under in, you know, different kind of directions. And I wrote specifically about Miyazaki and villains and how much he dislikes a fixed villain. Castle in the Sky, I think, is the last movie that he made that has an, an out and out villain. And when I looked into it, I, 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 you, you touched on this, Keith, but I like, I love his bluntness in interviews. He, he has a tendency to just, he doesn't want to dig like deep into like analytics. He will just give you a like a very simple, cheery kind of surfacey answer on things. And he was asked like why he doesn't have more like out and out villains, and he more or less said, "No, nah, I don't want to spend all day drawing somebody who's going to scowl and and be mean because you spend a lot of time on these movies, and I don't want to spend you when you draw somebody who's frowning, you tend to frown, and I don't want to do that for an entire movie. These movies take forever to make, so he just he has had this attitude for a long time, and this is a very Japanese attitude that that often, I think, trips up Westerners with their love of very black and white moralistic thinking, very, you know, heroes and villains and no gray ground in between that we're only just starting to get over in our media, maybe thanks to the influence of so much media from other countries. But his villains tend to be people who are just misguided, who have like either missed out on love or friendship or affection or just need a different point of view, or need for the heroes to kind of laugh at them and decide that they're no big whoop and stop fearing them. Uh, here, it's it's less no face that makes an impression on me here, and more the baby and the weird Yubaba bird, who both are completely magically defanged and then just quietly evolve over the course of the movie into cute little companion animals. It's such a strange beat. But it does kind of smack, again, of what you put into the world is what you get back. And when Yubaba is focused entirely on spoiling the baby and, like, pampering him and be, but very obviously also being afraid of him, he's a tyrant. And when somebody smacks him down and turns him into a mouse, suddenly he's small and sweet and enjoys the adventure of, of running around, you know? There's a logic to it, but it's a very, very fluid logic and a very fluid movie. Yubaba is a... She has a business to run, right? She's a capitalist yeah. mm. like at, at, her, at her heart. Yeah. I love that too. And the baby is just, a, he's not evil. He's just spoiled, <laughs> right? Like his mom is rich and he's lived the entirety of his existence in this attic, essentially. With his friends, the heads. And I think, <laughs> yeah. And like, and we're, we can talk about character design, but like, you know, to the extent that they're, they're villainous, they're still very appealing to look at, right? Like this baby is still cute in a weird way and then gets even cuter. So I, I could I could see it being even more fun to draw, right? Like as as the kind of movie goes on, but it doesn't it doesn't start out not fun to draw. I would say like it doesn't even No Face, like you know, a lot of his scenes 
they can get very gruesome and very scary, but like his his design is very, it's like, it is very simple and very kind of, it's like weirdly very beautiful to look at. I think a lot of, a lot of his character designs just happen to be very beautiful to look at. I would argue that Yubaba is not beautiful to look at. <laughs> I think Yubaba, especially in her introduction, as just this creature of gigantically broken proportions, you know, with her giant nose mole and her eyes that sometimes take up her entire giant head, is so disturbing. Like, maybe interesting. Maybe the board. most disturbing thing in a Miyazaki movie. But then what about uh, Zaniba? Is Yubaba's design. Is, is it still as off putting when it's Zaniba? Zaniba isn't animated in such a distortionate way. Mm. Like Zaniba is kind of presented as a similar design, but like not as not as shifting. Like the the virtual camera doesn't like pull in on her eye in such a way as to like completely take her out of proportion or like inside her giant mouth in a tortor like way. She's a much more controlled version of the same design and the same figure and. You know, that very much reflects Chihiro's kind of relationship to her and and approach to her in terms of she's just she's a more controlled uh, vision in a more controlled setting. She has more control over her own emotions. Yubaba is uh, an imbalance of like outsized greed and anger and, and suspiciousness and connivingness. And all of these things are reflected in how she visually distorts as we're looking at her. And Zaniba just seems like she's a quiet person who has it all under control. And that's reflected in her lifestyle, but also just in the way her design doesn't distort. I still think it's beautiful to look at, <laughs> right? Like, it, or beautiful is maybe the wrong word, but interesting is. Is, is probably a better mm -hmm. word. There's something to that kind of distortionate point of view that I still like. I, I could see that. I could see that being more fun to draw over time and consistently fun to draw, as opposed to a more traditional kind of like you know what we're talking, you know, Western villain or like a, a Jafar or something like that, right? Like it's just a very, very different, very different kind of like stereotypically malevolent and more black and white kind of type of villain. Speaking of fun to draw, I just want to know who on Ghibli movies is responsible for like in every Ghibli movie, there's at least one scene of just like a gloriously detailed painted mm. room where like every tiny surface has been thought through and planned. And I want to know who it is that has devoted their <laughs> lives into just like painting uh, highlights on brass door handles and paint streaks into, um, you know, cabinet, cabinet doors or, you know, whatever it is, all of just all of this like incredible detail. Like I can, I can see somebody just like really having a field day with like, this is the scene where no face turns into a room sized balloon. That's mostly mouth. But somebody in, in the next room over from that person was just like sitting there painting like fat marbling on meat. <laughs> I mean, all the food, all the food in Miyazaki movies and in Studio Ghibli movies in general looks amazing, right? Because he, he'll always, he'll tell his animators, right? Like, you know, draw the real world, draw a stylized version of the real world, draw, you know, draw actual movement as opposed to what you think a chair looks like. It has to be an actual chair or something like that, right? And that's why the food looks so good. That's why some of these environments look so good. It's just the 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 attention to detail kind of comes from comes from some some aspect of the real world, right? Like it's not it's not photorealistic. It's not like a it's not trying to be photorealistic, but it kind of 
it gives you a feeling of like, oh, like that actually looks delicious to eat, right? Like I love the, the, these like noodles or this, this, this food that the, that the mom and dad are picking out on, like they're doing it for a reason. Uh, to go back to the subject of quote-unquote villains in this movie, I think it's less interested in villainy and more in flaws. And the thing about flaws is we all have them. You know, they, they don't need to be embodied in uh, one single character, one single person, you know, and to go back to the sort of like fluid nature of this uh, movie, like a lot of characters have moments of, you know, where they act Poorly, you, you know, like even Shihiro at the beginning is kind of a whiny brat. But I think like the flaw, the most consistent flaw across a bunch of different characters is greed. That's maybe the main uh, sort of theme of, of this. I think that flaw of greed is often a driving force of the character design and animation to uh, No Face, of course, being a really good example of a character who be like whose design becomes frightening the more gluttonous he is i, I guess gluttony and greed are related uh, flaws but slightly different uh, uh or embodied differently by different characters here but my point being that there is not like one single figure that all of human <laughs> flaws or uh, malevolence is put onto it's like we can all have moments of badness and we can all have moments of goodness and i think that is kind of of a piece with miyazaki's philosophy of just human nature Speaking of moments, uh, are there any moments that just, I mean, it's kind of a basic question, but are, are, do you have favorite moments in this film? Is there anything that kind of that you anticipate and, and enjoy uh, particularly? If I had to pull out just one, it's the moment when the, the gunk first starts coming out of the river god. See, I thought it was gonna be the weirdo that chose this. Actually, oh no, no, it's 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 so gratifying, you know. But uh, do you like to watch pimple the, popper whole, uh, YouTube's? Because that's <laughs> what, what that's Eric is. Eric is nodding strongly. Yes, I, it's so good. No, it's, so, it's amazing. Like, and and watching watching it get washed off in the bathtub is like I. It, it, it is the same feeling as like watching the pimple popper thing. And there's like bicycles and shit in it. Can we, can we curse yeah, on this fine. podcast? Yeah. I'm sorry. Great. Yeah. There, there's like, there's so much crud and crap and shit in it. It's so brown. Like it, 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 I feel like I use the term beautiful to like describe all these things, but it's like obviously not beautiful, but it's still very appealing, right? It's still very fun and interesting to look at. Way more than a pimple popper video. I, I that my my version of hell is being strapped to a chair and and forced to watch stuff like that. I don't know why I, I I think I find it satisfying in this movie. First of all, it's removed from actual you know gross human pus and holes in people's bodies and things, but also it's just it's so well animated from an action perspective. You know, you can feel the physical labor that's going into it. You can feel the resistance of this string of of messy dripping artifacts that's being hauled out of the spirit and when the that little masked head comes up out of all of it and it's just such a, a simple and clean thing compared with everything else that's just happened it's it's just such a moment of relief we, we should talk about the action in this movie and in other Miyazaki movies but like in he, it's funny because like, you know, that we we're talking about like his two moods, right? The, you know, two, the two types of Miyazaki audiences, but he's also known for like very quiet, meditative kind of like almost like, you know, empty, you know, the, the sort of empty space scenes, like the train scene 
you know, where it's just, it's really just the music or, or the scene where Chihiro is just kind of like eating some food and she's just kind of like looking out into the, the sort of expanse around her at night, like scenes like that. And then the action in these movies are in, is insane. Like he's like Miyazaki's action is so crisply and kind of clearly laid out. You know, a moment that I always like kind of wait for and watch is the, when she's kind of like scaling the side of the building and she's like, and she starts running along the, the, uh, the gutter and the gutter is kind of like cracking mm-hmm. under her and breaking. And like, you know, she gets like one foot on that gutter, like at a time, basically. And she's, she's moments away from death, right? Like Chihiro would have died. And like, I'm with her that entire time because like, I don't want, I, you know, I'm highly involved. I don't want this child to die. <laughs> it's funny that he has this reputation as like, you know, this, this kind of person who knows the value of kind of presenting empty space, right? Like he called like a, like in a, in a Roger Ebert interview, he called it ma, right? Like the space, like between your hands when you clap. But then like, there's this other side of him. That's like one of the best action directors, like ever, whoever lived, right? Like he's, he's, it, he storyboards all these movies and he's known for doing it so clearly and crisply and with such clarity that his animators know exactly, you know, how to turn planes or how to, how to turn Chihiro around or like, or how to animate no face, you know, just like rampage or a river spirit kind of just rampaging through, through the, the bathhouse, right? It's, he's so, he's so good at both, at both things. It's like almost unfair. Get you a man who can do both. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the my my other favorite sequence in this is the train sequence. I mean, as you say, it it is kind of a hallmark of Miyazaki movies. The quiet moment, uh, often the quiet moment with water, and just the satisfaction of like sitting on the train in that that peaceful moment, surrounded by these sort of like surcerating, simple uh, shadow creature spirits is such a breath after everything that's happened up until now and how frantic it's been. It's a back and forth between me on on those two images in terms of like, which one's my favorite scene. But I I think we got, we went on a deep dive into pimple popping and didn't really cover other people's favorite scenes. Like how would the rest of you answer that question? I mean, it it feels like the train is like what you have to say. Like Like obviously the train scene sticks with you. But every time I rewatch this movie, I'm struck by how good the opening is. Like, like in particular, just the revelation of the spirit world, or even like Chihiro's parents being drawn in to what they think is a theme park. And like, you get the sense that something, you feel immediately disoriented or ill at ease just because of the way they're being pulled toward it. And Chihiro's like discomfort with the whole thing, like it, it feels immediately off. And then just the way it progresses and oh my god when the lights go down and the spirits come up and the the boat comes in and the music comes up like i just i i love the revelation of this world and it just it brings you in to this movie so beautifully but i think my favorite sequence on this watching was uh the the first boiler room uh sequence with the the soot sprites um i have a, a real weakness for uh ghibli sprite characters uh mononoke tree uh spirits uh we'll be talking about uh some i'm sure in in boy and the heron too like i love the your, your cute little spirit figures and the sit sprites are just like cute they're a source of humor but it's also kind of chihiro's first big moment of growth you know the the finish what you start thing which is so good and it's also 
a moment for the boiler man too, who is a character I really love despite his spider like design, which we knew well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but like he's he's a character that like kind of you know like we said friend to ally uh, kind of kind of arc, but uh, you also see him kind of softening on Shahiro over that. So I really love that whole scene just for the its warmth, <laughs> literal and and figurative, and also its its sweetness, I guess. But it's still happening in this really uh, heightened moment of the movie where, you, you know, like, you still don't know what's happening. Chihiro doesn't know what's happening. Everything's weird and frightening, but there's this kind of moment of maybe things aren't so bad here. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe this isn't the, the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm quite fond of, of that part. There's a lot of humor mm-hmm. built into Miyazaki movies, but f- to my mind, there is no funnier moment in all of Studio Ghibli than that moment when Chihiro picks up the coal <laughs> off the little uh, soot, soot spirits that's being crushed, and all of the other yeah. <laughs> soot spirits who are hauling these heavy blocks of coal look at each other, and just the 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 moment of beat for reaction, and then all of them pretend that their coal is too heavy and they need help too. Mm-hmm. It's it's the most hilarious thing. It gets me every single time. It's just the comic setup of that that beat where they're looking at each other, and then the frantic action is so perfect. And then the animation of just these things that have almost, in a way, no individuality. Mm-hmm. I was going to say no personality, and then I was like, no, I, I can't justify that. Ton of personality, no individuality. All doing the exact same thing, but all each in their own like individual squiggly weird little way. It's it's a perfect visual gag. I love the way that he is able to animate all these like kind of crowd scenes with these weird little little guys, right? Like you know, and and it's and in so many of these movies, like this character type recurs, and there's masses of them, and they have a, a relatively simple design, but they're all they're always doing different things. They all like have their own, you know, they're no individuality, but they all have like kind of their own, their own little job or they look a little bit different, mm-hmm. like the Kodaman, Mononoke or the, the, the sprites here. And the challenge of animating something like that consistently in like any one scene is massive, right? Like any, any kind of crowd stuff is like really, really hard to do, but he does it in every single movie. Like he clearly just like, he clearly just loves it and sees it as, as his signature. And it's like, it's so, it's just always a treat to see a new one at this point. Yeah, that's something I've been kind of wanting to write about for years is just Miyazaki's love. Like everybody knows that he loves he loves flying things and flying machines, that he loves things where form is mutable and things change into other things, that he loves, you know, water and and things with gigantic mouths. But not enough is said about how he loves masses of wriggling bodies <laughs> piling on each other and especially like trying to squish out of spaces that are too small for them (laughs) i just like going back to the the pirates the crowd of pirates and how they move around like a lumpy fluid throughout castle in the sky or you know there's there's one of those in actually a couple of them in in boy and the heron there's just there's always something the the little girls the plane full of little girls in porco rosso just masses of of bodies all in chaotic motion on top of each other is just one of his his signature things that's always fun to watch 
So kind of circling back, you know, we've talked about our favorite Miyazaki films and how, and, and Eric, you talked about how intellectually this is, you'd recognize this is the best or one of the best, but why do you think this has been, it was, I don't want to say his breakthrough film, because obviously, you know, he had a, he had a huge following in Japan and, and Asia that was kind of slowly expanded throughout the nineties, but this was the one that won the Oscar. This is the one that really, you know, this is sort of the one that ends up on the sight and sound list. It's, it, it's, it's the, you know, it's the one. I don't want to say it's the one he's going to be remembered for, but it's certainly uh, going to turn up very early uh, in any sort of tribute to him. Why Spirited Away? I think this movie came out at a very, it's weird to think about, but it was a very convenient time for both him, but also feature animation as a whole. Mm. This was post-Disney Renaissance, post-Pixar sort of having its own early formative Renaissance. And then to your point, immediately after, like I, I think the second year, or the or the third year after the best animated Oscar feature came out, and, and I think it was Miramax that originally that imported his last movie, Princess Mononoke, and so it was like it, the timing was perfect, uh, and, and also you know Spirited Away is also an incredible <laughs> movie, like right, like that cannot be sort of said. Yeah, I can't rule that, that out. That can't be. <laughs> can't rule that out. <laughs> at all, right, like it ha- it happens to be incredible, and it happens to be one of his best movies, right? Like you know, better than many of his other movies. So the timing was perfect, right? Like, you know, you had this moment where animation in the feature form was starting to get recognized more than it had been in the past. The first animated feature to win the Oscar, I think, was Shrek uh, that first year. Disney, at this point in the early 2000s, was not making a ton of highly regarded, quote-unquote, Walt Walt Disney feature animation movies. Pixar was kind of beating them on that because this is before they they kind of like had taken them over. And at the same time, John Lasseter at Pixar was pushing really, really hard for uh, Miyazaki to rec- get recognized because, you know, he, animators like him and people at Disney were, were just like in awe of him. And, the, and I think Disney had gotten a lot of the distribution rights around this around the same time. So you had this kind of like inflection, like, you know, inflection point of like a lot of forces, you know, kind of working together to sort of canonize this movie in that way. Right. And that's not a bad thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. But, you know, it was it kind of, you know, you had this kind of generational talent doing a generationally great movie with a lot of support behind him from, you know, people at Disney who saw a financial incentive to, to support it, I think. I think that's all accurate. And I would add in that, you know, Princess Mononoke being the first of his films in quite a while to both get a very wide international release and to be presented, you know, more or less as he made it as opposed to cut up for American audiences. I think it had a knock on effect where in the same way that very often, when a movie becomes a big hit, the sequel will open, you know, twice as big as the first one did, because the first one has the advantage of, you know, a slow build and world world of mouth and become going viral and more and more people seeing it over time whereas when the sequel hits everybody who knows about that movie goes at once so i think it had a little bit of that factor of just mononoke was so big in a slow rolling kind of way that everybody who had been impressed by it over the course of the years since it came out all turned to Spirited Away at once when it came out. But even leaving aside sort of all of the historical factors and, uh, you know, the the film industry and, and animation world factors, I think Spirited Away is just his most accessible movie for adults. 
I, I think Mononoke is great, but it's it's politics and particularly it's it's kind of like villainy elements and the whole question of what happens with the forest spirit are very abstruse and murky in terms of kind of their emotional resonance, what what they mean and how you're supposed to feel about it. Some of his his earlier movies just very much feel like they're for children in a way that, you know, the Academy already in some ways leery about animation is even more leery about openly for children animation. But Spirited Away has a very, you know, in, in spite of the the crowds of characters and the episodic nature of it and the not necessarily for Western audiences like idea of this very complicated spirit world full of creatures that aren't good or evil, but that are just kami, you know, they, they serve a purpose, they represent radishes <laughs> or whatever. In, in spite of all of that, the, the story is bog simple. A scared girl who is is grumpy and timid and resistant to change is forced into a circumstance where she has to change and she finds her courage. And then she learns how to be brave for other people that she loves. That is, it's just, it's the most simple and accessible arc possible. And it's executed in this like grand glorious way that's that's playful and sometimes spooky and sometimes funny and, and sometimes gross. But you can see at every step exactly what the story is doing and, and what the progression is. It's very easy to grasp, I, I would think, no matter what country you're from. And that makes a big difference as opposed to, you know, something a little more emotionally or narratively complex like The, the Wind Rises or Porco Rosso or, you know, any of his movies that aren't primarily aimed at kids. Well, we'll be talking more about Spirited Away in our next episode when we talk about Miyazaki's latest film, The Boy and the Herod. For now, we'll be right back after a short break. Now it's time for feedback, but before we get to it, we want to shout out Film Spotting, the next picture show's Mothership podcast, hosted by Adam Kempinar and Josh Larson. As we record this, Adam and Josh have released an episode discussing the holdovers and the work of Werner Herzog. In the years not far away, we hotly anticipate their best of the year episodes. And also, if you live in LA or if you're going to LA, the annual rap party will be live at the Regal on what date is that? January 13th. So uh, I've been to these in the past uh, before they got big time and started going to the coasts for their rap <laughs> their rap parties. Back when it was humbly held in Chicago and they're a lot of fun. So if you make that show, you definitely uh, should. As for feedback, our listeners are still talking about Killers of the Flower Moon, including one of its final scenes. Genevieve, can you share a letter about that? Sure. Jay writes, Hey guys, I'm a new listener and I'm loving it so far. Tasha wanted to know our takes on one of the ending scenes. Initially in the theater, I was trying my best not to completely flip out on the screen and tell Leo he's stupid as hell. Now with a bit of time, I do think Leo is lying, but I think he may be lying because he's practiced the script so much. He has convinced himself that while it may not be medicine, it's what she needs. As you guys mentioned, he's not very bright, so it's likely he wouldn't ask a lot of questions. Yeah, he might have been lying to himself, as Jay implies, too. He might have just also just realize what he's what he's been doing is unthinkable and kind of convince himself he could never do that or he might just be you know a, a dumb liar who's not very good at, <laughs> at lying to people but yet at the same time i still feel that there is he has feelings for his wife nonetheless it's it's such a 
complicated situation. What, what What's your take on it? Well, we, I mean, we talked about it a bunch on the episode itself. I, I'm going to back up and say that while I would not have appreciated somebody shouting at the screen, like in my screening when I first saw the film, I am actually just pretty taken by the idea of that moment coming and somebody in the audience yelling, you a dummy, you know, <laughs> just like full on emotionally responding to the moment. I think we were all feeling it. And sometimes that kind of thing can can feel self-important in a theater, like somebody thinks they're more important than the movie. And sometimes it just feels like, hey, that person said what we're all thinking. I think it's the pivotal question of the movie. And I think it's based on interviews. I think it's one of the ideas that Scorsese was exploring. Just how did a man who purportedly did love his wife, how could he do this? And the question of how could he do this is sort of the question of how do how does humanity do such terrible things to each other every day? You know, why do we why do we preach like love and joy and, and peace and cooperation and then go out and start wars with each other? You just blah, blah, something, something, two wolves uh, and the one you feed. And I, I think that it's actually pretty key to Ernest's character that he's been feeding both of those wolves and not telling his left hand what his right hand is doing or not admitting to himself that those wolves are in opposition. He just he wants to keep all the wolves fed and at peace with each other and is not necessarily smart enough to see the consequences, especially when they conflict with how he's decided he sees the world. That's sort of my best guess at the moment. I don't know, Keith. Where where did you land? I mean, yeah, pretty much, pretty much there. Pretty much what what I what I said. You know, it's and but also I feel like, you know, I don't think we're supposed to come away from this film with an answer. I think it's supposed to be, we're supposed to be having conversations like this inspired by that film. And you know, let's keep that conversation going because in any other conversation, uh, we love our feedback. Please give us some more. <laughs> we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations or whatever, anything else about film. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. And that's all for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll talk about Miyazaki's latest, The Boy and the Heron, and also Spirited Away Again. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast, extra content, find us at Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net on X <laughs> or at, at nextpicturepod and at Blue Sky at, at the next picture show if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, please don't eat any food from abandoned amusement parks. You will regret it later. Mm-hmm.